And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am uncommonly excited today about uh, the, the program that we're about to, to do for you, uh, a conversation with someone who's been on the morning show any number of times, although it has been a little too long since I had Professor Jonathan Shaler on the program. He is a professor of communication at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, our neighbor to the north. He has been there almost 30 years. He's about to start his 29th year. And the reason for this invitation to Professor Shaler is that he uh, was recently named one of two recipients of the highest teaching award given by the UW System Board of Regents, their Teaching Excellence Award. So a music professor at the University of Wisconsin-Superior and Professor Shaler right here at Parkside were uh, each given this award. And so it seemed like a perfect opportunity to... uh, have uh, Professor Shaler come back on the program to uh, talk about his life in the world of higher academia and uh, about some of the really interesting things that he has done both uh, in and out of the classroom. Uh, As I'm sure any of you who are longtime listeners to the program will recall, we've talked with Professor Shaler on a number of occasions about his noteworthy Shakespeare in Prison project which is still going strong after all these years. And uh, we'll also be talking with Professor Shaler about some of the work that he has done around the whole issue of conflict and resolution. He is both the, the director and the founder of the certificate program in conflict analysis and resolution uh, at Parkside. And we will find out a bit about how all of that has, has come about. And of course, if you are a listener to our programming on the weekend, then you surely know that Professor Shaler is one of several different co-hosts of our Education Matters program. And Professor Shaler has led some wonderful conversations uh, on that, that program, uh, which I hope we'll have time to talk about as well. So enough introductions. Professor Jonathan Shaler, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. It's wonderful to be here. And congrats again on this, uh, this, this lovely award. Uh, maybe we could just kind of start with uh, some of the nuts and bolts of that. Uh, do you know, first of all, very much about how that award is given? And, uh, I mean, for instance, do you have to be nominated for it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was nominated by my campus, the... Um, Head of our teaching center, Amber Handy, took the helm in helping me put my nomination materials together. The the actual nominator was my dean, Leslie Walker. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a heavy lift putting all the materials together, but it's a serious award, and you've got to show what you've got. And waited a few months and then got the call, which was fantastic. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, people may have noted in the the news release that this is certainly a serious award, not only for just kind of the the, the dimensions of it, uh, just the honor in and of itself, but it also comes with a fairly substantial uh, cash award. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you were mentioning before we went on the air that you have put that to very, very good use. Tell our listeners about that. Sure. I received several thousand dollars for the uh, award and used that money to for professional development, which is what it is supposed to be used for. So you're and, not uh, supposed to buy a yacht. That's right. <laughs> so I went to Vancouver for a couple of weeks in July to study with David Diamond, the originator of Theatre for Living, which is a process of facilitating community dialogue through theatre, 
and this is based on the work of Augusto Boal, who developed the theater of the oppressed mm. in Brazil and then later in Europe and worldwide. It's a something that David Diamond's been doing for 40 years now, so he truly is a master of the art, wow. and it was a fantastic experience. I was there with a very diverse group of folks, of course, a lot of people from Canada, but also a young man from Nepal, someone else from South Korea, um, United Arab Emirates, Colombia. Mm. It was a really exciting group to be a part of, and I learned as much from the other participants, I think, as I did from David. Fantastic. Glad to hear it. Well, congrats again on uh, being the uh, the very deserving recipient of this high award from the University of Wisconsin Board of Regents. So I recall from the uh, Education Matters interview that you did uh, with your brother, Christopher? Christopher Shaler. Yeah. Uh, upon his retirement after many years teaching high school theater, that uh, you are originally from New England. Yes. And, and from the sounds of it, from a very sort of theatrically and communicatively active family. Yep. Tell us a little bit about Wonderful. the roots of Jonathan sure. Shaler. Well, my father, William Shaler, uh, was a public servant, uh, town selectman. He also worked for United Airlines. That's where he met my mom. But the uh, something that I always treasure about my father and, and remember and I know that is a part of me and, and my siblings is this dedication to public service. Mm. Uh, my mom, a joyful person, a performer, a nurturing human being, and in that cauldron, I guess you could call it, of uh, family passions, we uh, we developed um, a love for music, a love for theater, a love for performing, and for being out there in the community. So, uh, my brother Christopher, as you mentioned, is a uh, theater person. Uh, he was for many years the director of theater at Hamilton Wenham Regional High School. And then my other brother, uh, Richard, is uh, a retired police officer Mm. and talk about public service. Wow. He recently performed on the capital uh, of of our nation for the uh, annual memorial for our fallen officers. And he was a soloist featured there. You as a voice teacher might be interested in that. And my sister is uh, a wonderful uh, – she worked in the cellular telephone industry for many years, uh, but she also now is uh, works with families that are dealing with kidney issues, uh, kidney disease, and going on dialysis because she went through that uh, with her husband. Mm. And she also is a um, an advocate for suicide awareness and prevention and works with families that have had recent tragedies. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's not not a, uh, not much of a surprise, yeah. uh, the kind of life that you have sought to live. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like that's what your family's all And I have one more brother, Tom, <laughs> mm. who is has spent many years in our serving our country uh, in the military. And uh, he was with the Army National Guard for many years, and his sons are also serving our country. Very good. So as you thought about what professional path to pursue, I mean, particularly when you were thinking about college and what to study, uh, what drew you into the the path you ultimately chose? Mm. I started as a theater major at UMass Amherst, and I thought that was going to be my path. And then 
I had a friend, Carol, who said, uh, you know, we might not get jobs, and uh, maybe we should look to uh, another way to make sure that we're going to have employment. So I got a teaching degree in English theater, uh, speech, and God knows what else. <laughs> that was a start. And I was a high school teacher for, for several years, including a couple of years in, in Jamaica, West Indies, which oh. was an interesting experience. Wow. And I came back to study uh, at grad school at UMass Amherst. And I was I was very connected to a professor named Barnett Pierce who had introduced me to something called the communication perspective, which then became a primary motivator and uh, for me as a teacher – the excitement of knowing that communication uh, is not just something we occasionally do, but that it is a perspective on life, that moment by moment we're making choices of action and interpretation, mm. and that this is building the worlds that we live in. Moment by moment, we're building our relationships. We're building our institutions. They, they exist only in communication. So uh, this theory became very real and practical for me. Uh, I, I could. I got what it meant, uh, and that went on for some years. That my graduate education, I got into dispute mediation. There's where the conflict resolution part comes in, because if communication can't help us solve our conflicts, what good is it? Hmm. And uh, I became a mediator, studied mediation, wrote a book about mediation. Got my first job at Ithaca College. Should I just run through the, the little <laughs> bio here? And uh, taught there for five years, wonderful college up in uh, upstate New York. Then I was lured away by University of Wisconsin, Parkside. Uh, Wendy Leeds Hurwitz, who was then department chair, was looking for somebody to teach uh, a, a variety of things. I think intercultural communication was one of the areas that wasn't my main thing, but I had been hired to teach that at Ithaca College, so mm -hmm. there was a natural connection there. But when I was hired at uh, Parkside, the big draw for me was the opportunity to develop courses, and I was encouraged to do that and pretty much right away developed the certificate program in conflict analysis and resolution. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh the biography attached to the announcement about your award uh, said that you, over the course of these then 28 years at Parkside, have taught 22 different courses. Don't ask me what they are. Right. <laughs> but I am going to ask you, um, in general, has what you taught changed dramatically from 28 years ago versus what you are teaching now? I mean, for instance, are you teaching courses now that did not even exist 28 years ago? Or has sort of the tilt of what you most want to teach, uh, has that changed over the years very much? There's been some evolution, some cycling. The three courses in conflict resolution, intro to conflict analysis and resolution, conflict mediation, and practicum, the community-based course in conflict analysis and resolution, those three courses have remained stable and have been the heart of what I teach throughout my tenure at UW-Parkside. There has been all kinds of other things going on because uh, we had a three-course teaching load during my first decade or so of teaching at, at Parkside, and then it changed to four. And so I had the opportunity to teach even more courses. Mm -hmm. The one course that I've loved teaching and will return to this fall, it's been a long time since I've had the opportunity to teach it, is an introdu introductory level course 
uh, communication and the human condition. And this is where students first get a taste of what it means to look at life from a communication perspective. And a lot of it is interpersonal communication, but it is also communication writ large, includes social media, public communication, and and so on. That's an exciting and fun course to teach. I also noticed on your list of courses, communication and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Can you just summarize what is covered in that particular course? I haven't taught that one in a while, but the the way that we teach it in our department is that – we dedicate the course in any given semester to uh, one of four American ethnic groups, either Asian American, Native American, African American, or Latina Latina. And the idea is to look closely at forms of communication and experiences of that particular ethnic group. When possible, we like to have somebody of that ethnic group actually teaching the course. Mm. Because I'm a cinemaphile, I, if that's a word, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have taught the African-American communication course as black cinema and uh, have delved into the history of black cinema. And that has been a very rewarding experience. The, the, The films themselves can be looked at as artistic pieces, but they can also open up conversations about the African American's experience. And that's the, the goal of the course. So, yeah. Very good. Uh, in, uh, back to the uh, conflict analysis and res- resolution piece of it, mm-hmm. one of the courses I saw listed was uh, named Conflict Transformation. Mm. Uh, does that sound familiar? Or am I announcing no, no. you a course that you haven't yet taught? Yeah. Or <laughs> no, no, nothing? that's in there. Um, the idea is that you know we can talk about conflict management, conflict uh, resolution, and conflict transformation. Each one of those phrases has a different connotation. And more and more the words conflict transformation are being used in the field. And I think it's a good thing because – it emphasizes the point that conflict can be an opportunity for change. So conflict transformation, meaning that it can be an opportunity for us to see anew who we are to one another and maybe change who we are to one another mm. through the process of, of conflict and communication. So it isn't, uh, as we sometimes think about, as we have a intense conversation our hope is that the other person and or their perspective will be transformed. Right. <laughs> We're talking about we ourselves being open to that possibility as we kind of pass through this process. That's right. Yes. And uh, that's also the process of dialogue, which is very central to my, my teaching. Dialogue is something that's very important to me because it's about getting at conflict upstream, meaning before it becomes a crisis. Uh, if people get to know one another, if people are able to engage each other's perspectives on a regular basis, then explosions, uh, tragic misunderstandings are less likely to occur. Right. So what is it like to be teaching uh, conflict analysis and resolution and talking about it at a time in our nation's uh, history and collective life when it seems like the atmosphere is just fraught with such tension, and it just seems like uh, the divides seem especially intractable. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I guess 
part of what I'm asking is, is it even more difficult? I mean, albeit more important, but but trickier to kind of talk about some of these matters. That's a really great question. And in fact, we're wrestling with that as a system. The UW system is, is wrestling with that issue right now. Uh, we are having a series of conversations about this, uh, dialogues about dialogue and about uh, reducing the polarization. On August 28th, I'm going to be working with a crew to um, host a four-hour in-service workshop for the entire UW system on dialogue. Wow. And uh, I'm developing that right now, right down to the wire. (laughs) But the idea is that, yes, we are polarized and that there are better ways to talk to to one another. So where do we begin – we could, one thing that we can look at is uh, what, it, what is a supportive communication climate versus a defensive communication climate and how do we foster a supportive communication climate? There are very practical things that we can do. There are very specific ways that we can talk to one another uh, rather than saying, uh, how do you know that's a fact? Um, mm. the tone is everything. Ask the other person, so what, what is it that you know that led you to, to, to believe this? I need to know more of the context from which you're coming from. So it's about tone. It's about style. It's about patience mm. and uh, knowing that uh, you're going to have a better conversation if you speak in a way that uh, people will want to listen to you and if you listen in such a way that people will feel comfortable speaking to you. Mm. When it comes to the matter of practicum, uh, and I think that term is specifically there mm-hmm. in the curriculum for this, uh, what what kind of practical or tangible scenarios do you create or allow to play out in, in those particular courses mm. where, where you're really not just talking about this, but trying to actually do this? Yes. We've focused on training and development. So the students in the conflict program have already gotten some hours under their belt and have some confidence in the concepts and the practices. And now in their third semester are going out into the community and doing, as I said, training and development with groups that are often overlooked or under-resourced. This would include – we spent many years at HALO and Racine, the Homeless Assistance Leadership Organization, and that was a very enriching experience uh, for all of us. We've worked with local schools, with at-risk kids in local schools. We've worked in the prisons, both – Racine Youthful Offender Correctional Facility and Racine Correctional Institution. And uh, the year that 2020 that Jacob Blake was shot, we, on the fly, I reoriented the class so that we would directly address the crisis that had erupted in Kenosha. And this was during COVID. So we went online and we hosted a series of community conversations throughout the semester. Uh, and that was very powerful. That wow. was uh, very much needed, I think. Of course. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a moment about COVID. I wasn't really going to, but uh, what you just said mm-hmm. kind of prompts the question. Uh, all of us at any level of education had to grapple with a really complicated uh, situation. And even though we saw it from afar <laughs> approaching, it still sort of caught a lot of us by surprise. It sort of felt like a 
unpleasant surprise to kind of have to reorient maybe what we've done for decades mm-hmm. and suddenly had to uh, deliver in a very different manner and in very different formats, of course. I've, I've, I feel like I should ask you about this since you are in the business of communications, what it was like for you and for your students to have to adapt to a completely different uh, learning environment because of COVID. Mm-hmm. And um, do you feel like there were ways in which there, there was silver lining to that unhappy situation? I mean, uh, in some ways, was it maybe illuminating about the whole nature of communication to suddenly not be in the same room together? Or, I mean, what, what do you take away from mm. that period of time when all of us were teaching in, in different ways because of COVID? Well, I, you know, I, I was impressed by how much weight the technology could carry. So I became proficient at Zoom and um, some two online tools for learning that I hadn't been proficient with before. And I'm still learning, for example, for this workshop on August 28th, I'm, I've recently been introduced to Mentimeter. How did I not know about this wonderful app that uh, allows you to do instant polling on oh. on a on a call and oh. um, multiple choice responses and all open-ended responses and all oh. kinds of things like that? So, uh, learning more about technology and how that can support uh, learning certainly was one unexpected positive outcome. Another thing that uh, since uh, COVID hit. In March, I mean, in a practical way, uh, changed our lives beginning in March 2020. Uh, that rolled right into summer. And I used those summer months to set up um, a series of Zoom readings of full readings of Shakespeare plays with the International uh, Shakespeare in Prisons Network. And uh, we got quite a few people participating, including formerly incarcerated folks. And it was a wonderful way for all of us to deal with the isolation, to stay in touch, because a lot of us were now not able to go into the prisons to do our work. And uh, so it was actually a very heartwarming community-building experience that we would not have had if COVID had not occurred. For sure. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking today on The Morning Show with – Dr. Jonathan Shaler, who is professor of communication at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, uh, a current recipient of the highest teaching award that uh, can be given by the UW System Board of Regents, their Teaching Excellence Award. And uh, Professor Shaler, as I'm sure many of you know, is also now a part of the WGTD family as uh, one of the very able co-hosts of our Education Matters program uh, that uh, is broadcast on, on Saturdays uh, here on WGTD. Well, thank you, Professor Shaler, for providing a lovely segue and uh, one aspect of what you do that we really need to talk about, namely the Shakespeare in Prison Project, okay. uh, of which you just uh, made, made, made reference. Uh, so um, we've talked about it on, on any number of occasions, but I honestly do not recall the genesis of your interest in doing that kind of work, mm. specifically the Shakespeare in Prison Project. I mean, certainly, it, as you were uh, talking about earlier, it springs very authentically out of who you are and how you were raised and mm. uh, uh, your, your, your system of values and so on. But there are all kinds of ways you could have acted on those impulses. What led you ultimately to uh, pursue this uh, intriguing notion of doing Shakespeare behind prison, prison walls? Mm. 
Well, my passion for Shakespeare goes back to the days of my work as a high school teacher intern with John Warthen in Amherst, Massachusetts. He was passionate about Shakespeare and about teaching Shakespeare in a way that I did not know was possible. And uh, he had us standing up on our feet, reading and, and performing the scenes showed us films that were thoroughly engaging. I remember the Russian uh, Lear was incredible. Hmm. And the I was enthralled. And I knew that uh, Shakespeare could open up new worlds, could provide an, uh, an avenue for emotional expression, for reflection on one's own life. It was an opportunity to build community and to, to do this with other people. It, uh, it was just uh, amazing. So... This was with me, but I didn't have anything I could do with it once I moved into communication and conflict resolution, also passions of mine, until at a conference uh, – this uh, organization is called Theater and Pedagogy of the Oppressed, mm. <laughs> and wow. it's uh, inspired by the works of Paulo Freire and Augusta Bawal. The At one of these conferences, I met a woman named Agnes Wilcox who had just completed uh, several semesters of developing a production of Hamlet at a Missouri correctional facility. And she'd been featured on This American Life uh, with um, mm. Ira Glass. So she was a celebrity at the conference and people were talking about her and people encouraged me to have lunch with her, which I did. And I was so excited to hear about the work she'd been doing. I was I was now teaching in prison at this point. I was doing what I call theater of empowerment, uh, which is something I would also love to tell you about if there's any time. Mm -hmm. The because I'm 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 returning to that. Mm. But the uh, the Shakespeare, you know, I told her that it, if I had the opportunity to do that, if I had the guts to do that, I would probably start with King Lear, which was the play that had really grabbed me mm. and had changed my whole perspective on, on Shakespeare and what was possible. And she said, well, why don't you do it? <laughs> and it's wonderful when somebody, a respected colleague like that, just looks you in the eye and, and kind of gives you permission to do something that you've wow. always wanted to do. And that was really all it took. So I already had a good relationship with the education director. That's so important, building mm -hmm. good relationships at Racine Correctional Institution. Been there for several years teaching these courses in theater of empowerment. So I was already doing theater of a sort. But the uh, the Shakespeare would be new, definitely. And I pitched it to her. She said she would be behind it, but I needed to have a formal proposal with uh, tie into the um, mission statement of the Department of Corrections, and I needed to give the warden a year to think about it, you know, to lead into it. So <laughs> I did all of that, and we launched in fall of 2004. And with a couple of interruptions, we've been going ever since. Right. I had the privilege of of uh, being there for one of your performances in the Racine Correctional Institution, a performance of Cymbeline, and I mean, I will absolutely uh, never forget it. Mm. One of the things that uh, struck me was, uh, I remember the occasion of that particular performance, something was announced in the prison. It had something to do with um, when the 
commissary was going to be open or the, 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 the place where the, the, the inmates can purchase, I don't know, chips and treats mm-hmm. or, or whatever. And those hours were going to be different. We're going to be much more limited for some reason that mm. night. And so then there was kind of a potential impact in terms of who was going to be able to, to come because, you know, if they came to this, were they still going to be able to Oh, it was by? it was dinner. It was their yeah. dinner. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I remember, you know, as you were kind of explaining this to us, I realized that what, what you were just saying about fostering a really positive relationship with with the staff and so on and really understanding in a fundamental way the operations of the prison mm. i mean it's about so much more than the shakespeare yeah it's about so much more than the theater it is also about understanding the whole culture of the place and beyond that even just the inner workings and of finding a way to fit into that that mm-hmm. will allow all of those wheels to keep spinning, and and I just think that's that's not always the way we in the arts think. I mm. mean, we, we we don't always like to plug into certain holes and operate in certain ways. And I was just really struck, and continue to be struck by how one of the reasons this has been successful uh, in every sense of the word is because you have evidently understood that right from the start, and have had the ability to function within this complicated system mm-hmm. yeah thank you absolutely and uh, this year we're doing uh, as you like it and I'm bringing in there's some new wrinkles that are presenting new challenges so um, we have been uh, permission to um, have our couple of rehearsals filmed as long as the actors are masked this is uh, mm. for reasons of, of protecting victims mm. and uh, from from being impacted by seeing the faces if they happen to see a, a broadcast or something. Um, but that crisis, not, not a crisis, but a problem or so-called problem or obstacle actually becomes an opportunity because then we get to do mask work. And we have some very fine mm. masks that um, were, were made by Jonathan Becker, a, a true artist out in Ohio. And... Um, at least some of our performances are going to be in mask, and that's a style of performance that brings out more expressiveness actually in the mm-hmm. body because you've got to use your body to convey so much, and uh, that's very exciting. I'm, al- I'm also bringing in three actors who are women to play the three female lead roles. Usually we have uh, men play the, the, the women's roles, and there's great uh, – learning that goes on when men play the women's roles. And that's a wonderful thing. But I wanted to try this. And I wanted to see, because I I had seen in a couple of instances where I brought um, a woman actor in to work with the men, how the the climate shifted. And Mm -hmm. uh, the men responded in a way that um, brought out a different dimension of their personalities and I, I thought that this would be an interesting experience mm-hmm. so we're trying it I uh, I remember asking you this in a previous conversation and I actually to some extent remember your answer uh, but I'm still going to ask the question again for the sake of anybody who didn't hear that particular interview or remember this particular moment I remember asking you why Shakespeare uh, why not uh, why not give these these inmates a theatrical experience, but why not make it 
streetcar named desire or fences or or something that is in a sense closer to home versus mm. the beautiful but ancient and in some respects kind of foreign world of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it about doing Shakespeare specifically that you think uh, can yield uh, fruitful results that you would not yield if you were doing something that might be, in a sense, more immediately accessible and Mm -hmm. in some respects might seem in the moment to make more sense. Mm -hmm. Why Shakespeare? Uh, Because the the strangeness of Shakespeare and the so-called distance that we feel from Shakespeare gives us room to experience things that we might have not allowed ourselves to experience emotionally or even intellectually because it's too close. Sometimes you don't see something until it's – and I know this as I get older (laughs) – until it's farther away from you. You can't really pull it into focus. That may sound a little abstract, but I I guess I can give an example. Also, also, let me say this before I forget – the language is supercharged. It there's something about the way that Shakespeare uses language that gets into our bones. If you uh, listen to it, even the rhythm of the speech, thump 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 thump, is the rhythm of the heartbeat. So we are connecting mm. literally our heartbeats to the language as we listen to it. We don't have to give permission for that to happen. We don't have to know that that is happening. It is just happening. Um, So when I had my first electric experience with um, Shakespeare, it was with King Lear, as as we've mentioned. And it was that scene between Lear and his daughters, that first scene in the play, where Lear is dividing his kingdom in three parts and getting his daughters to say how much they love him. And there was something about that scene and the way it was written that reminded me of some of my own family dynamics. And he brought something to life there that was so powerful um, that I, I couldn't resist it. And I found the same with uh, the prisoners. So they've had this the same kind of experience. When um, Steve, I remember, who played Cordelia in our production of, of Lear, really wanted that role of Cordelia because he felt misunderstood by his caregivers. He felt isolated. He felt persecuted. Mm-hmm. And to be able to give expression to that by playing that role in a way that he felt he did not have permission to otherwise was a great release for him. And also Cordelia gives voice to her uh, feelings and her th- thoughts. She has integrity. She speaks to back to power. And that's something that uh, he has always wanted to do, had always wanted to do. And so that was a tremendous opportunity for him. And when you think about doing this in prison, think about the potential impact, learning that uh, it's it's okay to have a world of feelings, it's okay to give them expression, and language is powerful. You can do this through language. You don't have to lash out physically. If you have words, you don't need fists. Hmm. It's 
I mean, to to see it, I mean, it proves everything that you were just saying in terms of of the way in which uh, these inmates take on this challenge. And of course, one of the things you've you've talked about in previous conversations is that in many cases we're talking about people who have never done this kind of theater before in their lives, or in some cases, uh, perhaps once upon a time far earlier in their careers. But I mean, this is this is a, such a steep challenge on so many levels, it would be for any of us. Uh, and I suppose that's maybe one of the blessings of it as well, is uh, what a tremendous feeling it must be for them uh, to take on a challenge and to succeed. I mean, that's probably a pleasure that is very, very rare in their in their experience of incarceration. And to have that validated by audiences. So this year, uh, we try to to have performances, and we will try again this year. It, logistics are always something that need to be worked out. Performances for the general population, that is, other prisoners. And then another performance for community members, as when you came in. And then very important and very special, uh, a performance for their own family members. And uh, that is always a very moving experience. You said you wanted to uh, talk a little bit about this other thing called theater of empowerment, Mm -hmm. which you say is coming back. Tell us about that. It is coming back because I I think I've been uh, rejuvenated by this work with David Diamond in Vancouver this summer. And his work called Theater for Living is very similar to what I do. And it involves... Methods such as image theater, forum theater, and other methods that uh, engage communities in dialogue and reflection together about their issues. I'll I'll give you an example. When we worked – because I have been doing this for many years, but I I want to embrace it uh, more fully and and use it – more consistently in all of my courses uh, this year. So the an example of this is when we worked at the homeless shelter, we had uh, people were developing plays that they were going to show to other folks at the at the homeless shelter about struggles that they dealt dealt with that might be similar to struggles that others were dealing with. And then through forum theater, you have you replace the central actor in order to try out different ways of responding to the situation. Uh, or you could, mm. in, in the way that I do it, you could, re- you could replace any number of, of actors, but one at a time. And so we're, as we're developing these plays, there was a young woman who was uh, at the homeless shelter who was uh, uh, very distraught. Uh, she had been cutting herself, and we noticed that she came in one time with a large red gash down her cheek, I alerted the folks at the the homeless shelter about this, and they were quite aware of what was going on. They were um, addressing the issue through whatever means they had to to do so, but they wanted her to continue participating in the group. They thought it was good for her. So Hmm. she wasn't an immediate threat to herself or others in the context of that work. So we allowed her to, to continue, and her scene was about speaking up to her boyfriend who had been neglecting her and saying what she really felt, which was really important to her. And it was very, I could see, therapeutic for her to rehearse that again and again during our 
rehearsal periods than when it came time for the public performance. She was ready to go. And it was very interesting. The The way that uh, it turned out was that the actor that we ended up replacing was the boyfriend. She wanted to stay right there as herself. And she wanted different people to come in as her boyfriend so that she could deal with different challenges that they might present her as she tried to speak her piece. Mm. And so we had several several men volunteered to do that. Then in the back of the audience, there was a young man who raised his hand and he wanted to come up. I later found out that he was her actual boyfriend. Oh, my. <laughs> so he had watched a series of men speak to her about these issues, and he had seen, he had heard her voice, and she had had a safe space to raise her voice without having to directly address him. But now here he is, and he came up, and they talked it out, and it was tremendous. The the air was electric, and at... The end of that sounds a little corny, but it happened for real. They 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 embraced a real reconciliation. It seemed in the moment, and wow. uh, of course we don't know what happened after that. But uh, that's the kind of thing that can happen with this theater work. You can't immediately plot out exactly what what's going to emerge and how it's going to be dealt with. But we've seen that kind of thing happen. One other example, image theater, where I did a diversity training and I asked people to pair up with people who are diff- very different from, from themselves, either age, race, gender, things that are immediately obvious. And uh, so people did that. And then I said, I want you to sculpt, which means you take your partner and through showing them or if there's permission to touch by moving them, shape them into a physical form that expresses how it feels to be a member of your group, how it feels to be a man, how it feels to be a woman, an African-American, whatever. And so – and then they, there's an exchange. Then the part, the other person sculpts their partner mm. back and forth and then that, that initiates a dialogue. And – the the important thing about that is that the body speaks that that our embodied experiences get at things that are not easy to talk about or not immediately accessible so there was an asian american professor working with a student who said something with her body that she would not have been able to say i do not think uh in a casual or conversation or even a formal dialogue very easily she uh sculpted that student by asking her to form herself in the tightest, smallest little ball on the floor that she could make. Mm. And remember that she's having that, her partner, she's shaping her partner into a form that expresses how she feels as, uh, in this case, an Asian-American woman. An African-American man um, sculpted his white male partner by having him put his hands up on the wall, spread eagle his legs, face the wall. And um, in response, the the white male uh, sculpted his African-American partner by having him uh, with a gaping mouth and hands up in the air as if to say, 
I don't know what the hell to do <laughs> about mm. this. Um, so it's it's an interesting way. Image theater is a very interesting way to explore issues that are hard to give language to. Right. Beyond yeah. the words. Yeah. yeah. Beneath the words. Yeah. When you do this kind of work, I mean, for instance, the Shakespeare in Theater Project, mm-hmm. I, I kind of hate to even ask such a mundane question after, you know, kind of all you've been talking about. But is that part of your responsibilities at UW Parkside or is that something we would kind of term community service that's happening in a sense off the clock outside of everything else that is part of being a member of the faculty at Parkside? Well, it's interesting that you should mention that. Uh, This spring I began work as the faculty ombudsperson. So the, uh, the provost and the chair of the university committee invited me to apply for the newly created position, which I did, and the university committee, uh, in conjunction with the provost, approved my application. So I am now available on campus for consultation and dialogue facilitation, mediation if people are willing to go there, uh, regarding conflicts between faculty, faculty and administrators, faculty and staff, even faculty and students. And uh, I'll just say this. I've been busy. Wow. Well, and how how amazing to have this work that has been such an important part of your life suddenly, in a sense, taken to a different level and right there where you live and work. Mm-hmm. I should think that would be really exciting, maybe a little scary, too. Well, it presents its challenges. So, you know, there are costs and benefits to being an insider. Mm-hmm. So when when there's conflict on your home turf. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, that really is uh, just one more amazing facet of of all that you are and all that you do. And uh, we want to reiterate our congratulations uh, on, uh, on on you being the uh, the very uh, deserving recipient of this high award from the uh, UW System Board of Regents, uh, given one of their Teaching Excellence Awards in recognition of all that you have done both uh, inside and out of the classroom over the course of the last 28 years at the University of Wisconsin Parkside as a professor of communication. Dr. Jonathan Shaler, it's always a a, a great pleasure and privilege to uh, speak with you, and I'm so glad we had this chance to talk today about all of the good things that you uh, continue to do, and best wishes with uh, the rest of your career at UW Parkside and beyond. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. And we want to remind you as well that Dr. Jonathan Shaler is one of the co-hosts of Education Matters, which you can hear every Saturday morning right here on WGTD.